With great power comes great responsibility. Compromise where you can. Where you can't, don't. Even if everyone is telling you that something wrong is something right. Even if the whole world is telling you to move. It is your duty to plant yourself like a tree. Look them in the eye and say no. You move. Never step onto the battlefield of ideas unprepared. Before you enter the fray, you need a plan. And there's no better place to get one than right here on Tactics with host Caleb Colquitt. The Situation Room goes live now on News Radio 1440. Hello, fellow tacticians, and welcome to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Thank you so much for joining us here on the program. As always, we do appreciate you tuning in and making us a part of your busy day for all the latest news that is going around in the River Region and the state of Alabama, and of course, in the nation as well. So we're doing something a little bit different tonight in the sense that we're actually doing something exactly the same as we did two weeks ago. I know that's confusing. I'm going to explain. So here's what happened. Two weeks ago, I did an interview with Dr. Ryan McWhorter, and it was a fantastic interview, lots of great information included, but unfortunately, it wound up being kind of ruined because my mic wasn't on. I know, super embarrassing. Actually, my mic was on, but there was a technical issue between the soundboard and my computer, and for some reason, the settings were off, which made it muted. I don't want to get into all the technical details, and I know that that would bore you, but the long and short of it is, what happened is the interview, you could hear the doctor, but you could not hear me. Now, granted, it's more important that you hear him than me in the interview anyway, but it was still confusing and difficult to watch because there were long periods of me talking and you couldn't hear anything. So here's what we're going to do tonight. I'm going to do my best to recreate and add in the questions exactly the way that I would have asked them. I'm sure there's going to be some things that are a little bit different and you don't get the advantage of my interactions with the doctor. But even though this is not going to be a live interview like it was the first time, hopefully this one will be easier to understand and you'll actually be able to watch it because I thought there was a lot of good material in there and too much to let it just be completely gone to waste. So we're actually going to be replaying parts of an old interview, but this time you're actually going to get to hear the questions and understand exactly what the doctor is saying. So we're going to uh, kind of be faking it, but we are going to make it as close to a, a real interview, just like the one that, that did take place two weeks ago. The doctor could hear me, but the uh, recording didn't catch it. So, so there you have it. We're going to go ahead and get into it right now. And so we welcome to the program, Dr. Ryan McWhorter. Thank you so much for being here with us on the program. Okay. Yeah. Glad, glad to be here. Excited to be here to talk about COVID. Well, thank you for being with us. And if you would just give our audience a little bit of background on your personal credentials as a physician and also why you took an interest in the COVID-19 pandemic, especially. So I have a fun, uh, I'm a family practice doctor and I have a functional medicine practice um, in Montgomery, Alabama, Alabama functional medicine. And um, it's really, you know, it, every family practice doctor has a lot to do with COVID that we, um, you know, obviously have a lot of patients with it. I've seen about 350 patients or so. Um, I started a telehealth um, just so I could help even my patient, my patients, friends and families, because there, there were just a lot of patients and uh, giving them some you know, some things to really help them rather than just um, just wait and see if you get real bad and need the hospital, but really kind of teach people what the evidence is. And so that's been a passion of mine since this came out. One drug that has kind of caught the public's interest and has really sort of 
catapulted to the forefront of our mind is ivermectin and it seems like the uh, with the media and everything they've really been trying to downplay this they kind of try to call it a horse warmer to try to scare people off they're saying that there's like hospitals that are just so chock full of ivermec victims that they can't treat regular patients which we found out some of those stories weren't true so what exactly is ivermec is it something that is safe and why does it seem that the media seems to suggest that it's kind of dangerous and, and people should avoid taking it? Sure. So, uh, yeah, I was quite a surprise when it came out as, as, you know, I'm not sure what's on media is that it's so dangerous. They just keep kind of keep saying that it's a horse dewormer. I really don't watch news or media really very much. So I really kind of just study. Um, ivermectin is a Nobel Prize winning medicine in human medicine it's not a it, it, it it's a half truth that it's a horse dewormer but it's also used in in, in humans and in fact it won it like I say a Nobel Prize it's been used about three billion times around the world for various things um, when when it, it when we found out that as a repurposed drug it, it would help corona it was starting to be widely used um, it, it does have antiviral properties there's there's a some uh, guy who trained at Mayo Clinic who did a lot of detailed research on it. There's eight or nine things it does to help your body um, with corona. Um, you can, it could be used as a preventative. And uh, for example, a study, I forget the numbers exactly, I'll kind of make them up, but 800 people were given it in healthcare, 800 people were not, those two groups were followed. The group that did not get ivermectin, there were about 600 some odd cases of corona in that group. The group not get the ivermectin there were zero cases so tremendous differences so it's better early in the treatment and you'll also use it as a treatment so when you first get corona um, you know covid it's the best time to take it um, later on like a later in the hospital it, it starts losing effectiveness going from a high of in the high 90th percent um, effectiveness rate down to about 42 percent effective rate is the lowest study i read much of this is featured in dr um Pierre Corey's website, where much of the um, research is cited, you can flip through his site. He's a pulmonologist and a, and a critical care specialist. Um, I believe he practices Wisconsin, but um, you know he's in the thick of things. After I'm trying to prevent people from going to the hospital, he's taking care of them once they're there. And um, big on ivermectin because the research is big on ivermectin. So those who have studied it uses it. Those who don't might just call it and go along with the media. But you know, doctors shouldn't learn medicine from media. They should learn from, from uh, you know, from research basically. And so it's not hard to find. There's actually dozens of studies, and and many of them are actually focused on COVID particularly. So we really have good research on it. All right. So here's something that I just wanted to bounce off of you, and and really it is just because I'm trying to find answers for these things, and, and some of the things that I've been seeing don't make sense to me. So is part of the reason that Ivamec and other cheap drugs like hydroxychloroquine have been getting kind of a bad rap from the media, is that because they're cheaper? Whereas remdesivir, you know, that's a designer drug that's fairly new. It's had very mixed results. In fact, the, the studies on it have, just based on what I've seen, show that they're significantly less promising from remdesivir than ivamec or hydroxychloroquine when administered correctly by a physician. And so is part of the reason that the media is, is throwing a, a fit over Ivamec and, and previously with hydroxychloroquine when they weren't with remdesivir, I can't really come up with a good reason for that. 
do you think there might be a monetary incentive that it's it's being pushed because that's what pharmaceutical companies would rather have since they stand to make a lot of profit off of remdesivir and not ivamec and and i'm not saying that i know that for sure i'm just saying that it's the only explanation that i can really come up with so what, what would your take be on that well I, I don't know about that but there's there's certainly a price difference and and yes um as i understand it a, a, a drug can't be um can't pass the qualifications for what we call EUAs, emergency use, um, unless there is no other real treatment. So it it is beneficial for pharmaceuticals if there is no treatment, then they can be used, including the, the early vaccines and, and remdesivir, a um, couple others, where they can be used because there's not any other options. So that's why there really quote are no other options, but it's from the research. I think that's quite clear that they they are and they and they are really extremely safe. And um, I have not seen a side effect from either medicine. Um, you can have transient visual issues with ivermectin. You can have if you take hydroxychloroquine long term, there are uh, changes you can see in the retina. But I don't I don't think we're talking long term here. So um, even when I talk with my um, ophthalmology buddies, short term. That's not really a concern with hydroxychloroquine. So one thing that I think has a lot of people in the state of Alabama concerned is that early on, we saw a wave of cases and deaths didn't correlate with that. So in every other wave that we've ever had, we saw cases go up about two weeks later. You also see deaths go up. That's about how much it lagged behind. But that was very different with this wave in that we were seeing cases explode across the Southeast and in, in the state of Alabama but we weren't actually seeing deaths trailing that, uh, to which me and a lot of other people that were watching the data said, well, th this is proof that the vaccines work. But then what happened is several weeks later, after that two week period, all of a sudden we started to see deaths catch up and, and they're kind of catching up right now. So the, the reason that I'm asking this is why was that? And is there a, a good explanation? Was it because of the variants? What would your take be on that? Well, it, it had confused me, but I think it's coming to light that I'm no longer confused. The, the rest of the world showed that really a lot of their hospital admissions were um, people that had been vaccinated. It, it was more like a 50-50 or 60-40 split. Here, I'm hearing in the news kind of everywhere, and even, even honestly talking with um, um, nurses, respiratory therapists, um, pulmonologists, it did sound like um, the bulk of people were unvaccinated here. But when you really start looking at some of the research that's coming out, that really doesn't quite hold up, which is more consistent with what we saw in, in throughout the world. And what, for example, if you count starting January 1 to current, yeah, most of the people have been unvaccinated. That's because people weren't really vaccinated till much later on. So the, the most vaccination was in the spring. So all those January, February, March, even April and May numbers really aren't accurate. If you look at the numbers that have just been over this spike, which occurred in August and out here in Alabama, which we, we could see was coming because it occurred in England and Ireland and other European countries, they're more, they're no, more north than us. So they usually get their problems a little earlier. Um, and then, so they had a very sharp, sharp peak, and then it went right down very quickly, but really big numbers, bigger than even last year, and, and followed suit. So um, starting uh, maybe, I don't know, I forget, maybe the middle of August, first of August, we started seeing a big rise. We have peaked now and, and are heading down, it, it seems, and hopefully it'll be a sharp peak just like that. We're now running into the typical fall season, so we'll see what that brings, but um, 
yeah, that uh, we have to be fair. And, and also another factor is, is what, it, what are we calling unvaccinated? So doctors know that when you're vaccinated and you get it in, in your arm, then it takes a while for it to actually kick in. It, it's just, just because I got vaccinated an hour ago doesn't mean I'm protected. The body has to go through its processes. So if a person comes right after a vaccine or even two or four or even six weeks after the first or you know two weeks after the second, that person can be considered unvaccinated for protection purposes. So some very interesting research out of Israel shows that actually um, <clears throat> those people that have been vaccinated may actually be in the hospital more often and yet they're not quite vaccinated yet or fully vaccinated. So there, we need a descriptor of people who haven't been, haven't been vaccinated at all, people that were vaccinated, but they're not fully immunized yet. And then people that are, you know, well after that time where they're considered fully vaccinated. So even in the Pfizer study, for example, it was, it was followed for about two months. Patients were followed at the end of two months the people who had not gotten the vaccine were then offered the vaccine. They were told it was very successful. And then, so here you go. And so those guys got vaccines as well, those who wanted to. So I don't like that as a scientist because I wanna know what happens when people get vaccinated. I wanna know what happens when people didn't get vaccinated. Well, if everybody or most people have been vaccinated, we don't really have a group to watch that weren't vaccinated. In other words, how you've lost your control group and control groups are huge. They're, you know, they're really, really important. Um, so, uh, just a couple of factors. So I don't, I don't know. Um, I hear it's, it's, uh, um, it's, it's frustrating at the hospitals. You hear doctors that are frustrated for treating people that haven't been vaccinated, which, you know, I, I, I share their frustration if they're concerned that, um, if they really believe the vaccine was very, very helpful. And, um, but you know, that's like not treating a skateboarder because he breaks his arm, you know, that it, People, people have lifestyle decisions if you're not comfortable with a, with a vaccine. I personally am not as well. I'm not vaccinated. And, um, I, you know, I just don't feel, I feel like it's too new of a technology. And I feel like the science is now backing that mindset up because Israel, the most heavily vaccinated country in the world, up to even 90%, their numbers are not down. In fact, their, their numbers of cases, hospitalizations, and deaths continue to climb. Um, people have looked at their research and, and it's not very impressive. Some are saying that, um, and, you know, some experts over there, I'm not an expert anywhere. I'm just, you know, guy in Alabama trying to do right by my patients. But there's, some of them are saying that it's a failed, you know, it, it's failed. They really haven't done very well. So I think it truth remains to be seen there. But um, I, I believe we need to call unvaccinated the truly unvaccinated and then give us a middle group for those who are not fully um protected yet, let's, let's say. In the last two months is what's important. The last six weeks, what kind of patients were those? Were they truly unvaccinated? Nothing had ever gone in their arm or were they partially vaccinated or vaccinated last week or what have you? Some of that Israel data is not very, um, it's not very exciting for those vaccinated. It, it looks like actually um, it's rare, but there are deaths that increase and, and, and multiple things that, um, um, the first one and particularly even after the second one. But if you look at all cause mortality, it actually goes up. So heart attacks, dementia, strokes, those kind of things actually go up. And, and um, there's a doctor who, who has shown in, in some research that 61% of his patients that have been vaccinated are, are revealing that they have a chronic blood clotting process going on in their system as evidenced, and I've seen this, as evidenced by an elevated D-dimer. 
D-dimer as a blood test we get pretty routinely now, and they are in several people. So um, that's not good. So chronic blood clotting leads to um, clots in your lungs, so chest pain, some shortness of breath maybe, chest tightness, the heart struggles a little more. So a cascade of events, it's pretty problematic. We see a lot of pelvic um, conditions. Um, we see a lot of women with chronic pelvic pain in our particular um, focus in our practice. And I have seen women who've had um, worsening cycles, worsening pain. I've seen a couple menopausal women, their cycles start back. So just some unusual things that, that are certainly not typical with other vaccines. One thing that was very concerning to me early on is when we're testing a new drug, it seems like we're always very cautious and should be when it comes to how these drugs will affect pregnant women. And so that's always something that is a concern because it's an incredibly complicated process that women's bodies go through in order to produce another person. And so because of that, I was very concerned that early on they were saying that these vaccines were not really tested very thoroughly on pregnant women, and yet we are administering these vaccines to pregnant women and telling them that it's perfectly safe. Is this something that you're concerned about? Well, they say it's the most tested vaccine ever. However, um, two months is not a very long test and it wasn't tested in, in pregnant women. They were um, disqualified from the trial or even if their husband was was uh, vaccinated, that one was, um, he was, they were disqualified from the trial. They were, they were watching that. So it's a, it's a complete shift in how we look at pregnancy and what's safe or, or not safe. Um, my whole career in medicine has always been, you have to prove that it's safe. Not that, um, you know, and that takes time. It takes years and years. And, and uh, we're just now learning, for instance, Tylenol, which has been studied, it's been proven, quote, to be safe, or at least we call it schedule A, which is the safest group of, of uh, um, you know, medicines that are, quote, okay in a, in a pregnant woman. Well, um, we now know, this is decades after, you know, I used it in residency when I was in obstetric rotations and stuff, but they're now showing that, it, that when kids are exposed to it in utero, that they actually can have a higher um, chance of attention deficit disorder. We've got a lot of kids with attention for ADD, ADHD, and um, you know how many of those are Tylenol to blame? I don't know. I feel Tylenol is a very safe medicine, but it also can be very nasty medicine. It's hard on your liver and stuff. So um, we just don't give things to pregnant women, period. So I share your concern. I'm completely with you on that. I would never recommend it to a pregnant woman. I know some docs do. That's their take on the research. I see it differently and I've really studied it. One thing that I've seen a lot of physicians talk about, and even Dr. Fauci back in March was talking about this, is there's a concern that we could produce a leaky vaccine. And what a leaky vaccine is, is that it doesn't really inoculate somebody. And because it's a countermeasure to the virus, the virus actually changes and adapts to the vaccine. And so what I was wondering is, are you worried that these vaccines might be leaky vaccines that aren't effective enough? And because of that, they're, they're letting these mutations take place and, and not really knocking the vaccine out because they're not quite as effective as they need to be. And if that is the case, could this result in the virus mutating and, and becoming more resilient to where we constantly need more booster shots in response to them? Is, is that something that you think could happen? The, the thing I'm most concerned about is, and I'm taking this from really, um, uh, you know, really well-researched, um, very experienced, top-notch virologists and epidemiologists, and they're saying that when you have a, a, a virus that's actively replicating and one that can change on a dime, 
that would be coronavirus. Um, they're saying that the, the virus can change within six hours. So let's say I'm exposed today. I've got this um, virus cooking in my body. Then I get vaccinated. They say within six hours that that virus can already change. Um, I read that there's up to a thousand variants already known. And so the more you vaccinate and if you can put pressure on a virus, the virus doesn't want to go away. It wants to hang in there and survive. So it's it starts changing um, that process. Uh, I'm not sure we know exactly how th that works, but the virus um, gets away from it, so to speak. And then now it's a it's a problem for the next guy. So the original vaccine is probably better at, at um, the original variant. We call it alpha and then now not as good with with Delta. But that's what I'm concerned about. And I think those guys have been um, proven to be right. All right. So would you say that natural immunity or vaccine immunity is better at protecting you from the new variants? I'm not sure I agree with um, these variants are more dangerous for those who haven't been vaccinated. The way God made it is a wonderful system. So in, in functional medicine, what we're trying to do is, is make your body more resilient. So how can you so what, you know, you can take vitamin D, for example, you can take zinc, you can take quercetin, um, you can take vitamin C, vitamin A to help it not live in your sinuses so long. It needs about three days there before it will drop into your lungs. So you can do several of those things preemptively. And, and by the way, they need to be done preemptively. You were saying you were low. So we, I teach my patients, the vitamin D needs to be in the system at least a week, maybe even two weeks before you get ill there's things it does. It doesn't just go in there and poof, you're awesome. It goes in there and starts changing how um, genes are expressed and it changes your gut function. It changes how your body can handle some, some virus. So the, the great news is, and this is turning out to be exceptional news for people like you who've had it. I have not had it that I know of um, despite working with it. So um, most it's, it's rare that I hear one of Anybody doing this where they get really sick? I mean, I just don't really get many calls on that. I get people calls for people who didn't do it, basically. Um, but what what I if if you get it in your system ahead of time, then it, it's just it just makes your body better, smarter. So there's great research on that. I know of seven United States studies, COVID studies, on vitamin D, and that it is preventative, at least um, highly supportive, very protective. The death rate just plummets in a 20 country study. U.S. wasn't in that one, but in a 20-country study, um, there was a direct correlation with your serum vitamin D and your risk of dying. So doesn't get much more simple than that. Vitamin D is good. You're pretty good. Vitamin D is terrible. It's pretty terrible odds. Yeah, there was a supercomputer um, at Oak Ridge in Tennessee. It worked for a week with, at, if I remember right, 67 quadrillion computations a second which is to me an unfathomable number. It worked for a solid week looking at gene expression in tissue and people had died, people that had survived. And in the end, you know what it told us? Be sure and take your vitamin D, that it was absolutely essential. So um, COVID's real, COVID can make you very, very ill. Um, I have had um, seen some really sick patients with it. Um, and if you're not on vitamin D, it, it changes how your body reacts, how your immune system is. We actually don't die of COVID. Typically we die of the body's overzealous response to the COVID and this goop that it forms in your lungs. That's called hyaluronic acid, also discovered by that supercomputer I was talking about. Um, and um, that hyaluronic acid is, is uh, 
extremely tough to get out of the lungs, but it's really from a cytokine storm. And um, different people have a susceptibility to produce that storm or not. And that's what you don't want. So vitamin C is what stops that storm from being so bad. Um, when I have people get sick, I, I push the vitamin C dose up to the point of having loose bowels and um, really um, turn all, off all those cytokines. Zinc's important in, in protection and in treatment. We bump the dose if you, um, especially if you weren't taking it, but um, you know, 30, I'm on 30 milligrams um, uh, daily. If I were to get sick, I might bump it up to 150 or so, or even more. Kind of things, and you make your body better. And and um, and and then those people that it would have gotten, I, I believe it does support their bodies extremely well, and they just don't get near as sick. But we do know this, and 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 you know, pulmonologists will tell us this that it doesn't it doesn't work. Well, it doesn't work late once you get to the hospital, and it doesn't work in small numbers. You have, have to use a, a, a good dose, a safe dose though. And you know, I, I follow blood levels in my patients. I wanna see what their vitamin D blood level is through a corona season. And, and I also have people on it in general because it does other things for our health. So would you say that vitamin D is the most important tool we have in combating COVID? Well, if you do some simple math, I, I did this for a, um, a talk I was giving. If you, if you have a vitamin D level of say 25, which is typical, you, you look at people, if their vitamin D level was 90, which is ideal, I think, in corona times, if, if you look at the number of people that are in the ICU, and, and last week or two, last time I looked, it was about 1,500 Alabamians in the intensive care unit. If average vitamin D is 25, and I'm pretty sure that would be close, maybe even lower, and, you, and those same people had been on 90, you would only have 30 people in the ICU. So that drops from 1,500 down to 30, with, with really basic math, um, multiple studies that kind of reveal, there's different ways to study vitamin D and stuff, but um, uh, there was a Thailand study upon arrival at the ER, if your vitamin D was less than 20, you had a 98.6% chance or 98.9% chance of dying. So you're dead. <laughs> Very few that'll escape that. If it's greater than 30, the chances drop to 4.1%. So. 98.9 to 4.1% just based on a serum vitamin D upon arrival to the ER. So um, we don't really see harm in those doses. There are certain people, that's why you got to talk with your doctor, but certain people with higher calcium, which isn't very common, but we do have that. We do have a couple of patients with that. So we can't give those people the same amount of vitamin D, but it's extremely safe. So talk with your doctor and, and ask them about it, but, I, but they'll generally say yes, especially if they're researchers. If they, if they look at all about vitamin D and, and um, they'll find that that's the case. You can find studies that say it's not good, but again, when was it given? What was the dose? All right. So here's a question that I get asked about a lot and has been sort of a topic of debate back and forth, even within the medical community. Do people with natural immunity still need to get vaccinated or are there risks associated with that? Natural immunity is about 27 times more effective than the vaccine. That's research out of Israel. Um, I have concerns about the vaccine. They're real. Um, they're not just, I'm not an anti-vaxxer. My children are vaccinated, for example. Um, and uh, I, God knew how to make our systems really good. We, when you have a natural immunity and when you support your body with things that make it healthier, it is healthier. And so, um, a person who doesn't do anything, I do worry for that person. I, I don't think that's right. I think that's knuckleheaded. And um, 
you know, you, you sound like you were winging a little bit, you're young and, you know, kind of bulletproof maybe, but you know, it, it could be rough with you and, and, uh, uh somebody, somebody's related to you, they may not do as well. So, <laughs> well, I think it's safe to say I didn't take all of the precautions that I should have, but part of that was an overcorrection on my part, because frankly, I just went way too cautious for the th threat level that this virus actually presented and wound up being when it was all said and done and we had the data out. So when this thing first started, I was completely shut down, didn't leave my house for over a month. And so I, I kind of overcorrected in the other direction. But honestly, I think the main reason that I was probably a little bit more cavalier than I should have been is because my other job where I work directly with young people, I've got over 120 students. And with all the interaction that I had with them and being on a school every single day, I was just convinced that there was no way that I didn't come in contact with Alpha and contracted it and just had an asymptomatic case. And so I was much more cavalier on that sense because I believe that I probably had immunity from having an asymptomatic case of the Alpha variant. And so I was just convinced there was no way I wasn't exposed to it at some point. Therefore, I figured out I had natural community. So I'm not saying that I handled it exactly the right way or I should not have taken precautions, precautions regardless of that. I'm just explaining that's that's kind of why I was probably more cavalier than I should have been. There was a rationale there. You may have protected yourself enough that you could have even been exposed and, and just not really, quote, get it. So I don't know. I think I, I, I feel like with my patients that have been um, supporting their bodies, they've really been quite boring. It, it really took something else to make them get extra sick or wind up in the hospital, like a different infection, like Legionnaire's disease, one young guy, um, um, a house that had mold in it that was really problematic for everyone in the family. Um, uh, a couple others, can't think about the second one. The, uh, I did lose a patient, he had asthma. He was a, a little bit older guy, but a young functional working guy, but he didn't do anything to prevent it, um, talking to his wife. Sadly, he called me right before he died from the hospital, which was the first time I heard from him. And there was than I could really do. So it is tough once you get to the hospital. Um, so they're not big. I mean, it's a little late for vitamins and minerals and stuff, although I would push them in, um, in, the, in the vein that Dr. Pierre Corey's teaching. His website is very good for if you're in the hospital, you know, print that off, hand it to your doctor. Maybe they'll um, research some of it, but that's that it, research those papers. But um, the research has been done. It's available. Um, it's easy um, to read and find. You can find it just in minutes. And um, and really just no downside to those to those supplements that I've seen with my crew. So is the reason that doctors aren't talking quite as much about prevention, I mean, certainly not as much as, as you have been today, is just because there's not enough research to know for sure what works, what doesn't, that kind of thing? The fact is, is we've had this for 19 months and the whole world's looking at it feverishly and there is tons of research. So it doesn't take you long to find some research that you can hang your hat on and you know, one study doesn't make re much research. You need 10, 20, 30 to corroborate your viewpoint. When you have that, you, you know, you're standing on some solid ground. And um, so I, I'm big on prevention with my crew. And um, I, I do think people ought to look into it, see if it's right for them or not. And then, you know, try to have a much, much milder case so we can give some of these poor doctors and nurses at the hospital a break because they are working hard. And now they're, some of them are going to be fired or quit because they're forced to get a vaccine that they don't think is safe. And um, I think that's just crazy. I think that's absolutely the worst move a hospital can make. Um, maybe there's financial incentives from a government to do that. I, I don't know. There must be because um, there's no other reason to drive nurses out of your out of your hospital that are sure they don't want to take something. Um, 
me, it, it, it should be a free country and we should be free from, um, um, you know, if, if it proved, you, if it helped nurses not spread the disease, but that's not been shown to um, be the case. So what exactly is your take on vaccine mandates? They're getting away with it. It's amazing. I think um, I, I'm proud of nurses that are sticking up for themselves and, and hospital people. I think it's the right move. And um, um, personally, that's up for me. It is anyhow. So um, we'll, we'll see how that transpires. But, you know, hospitals are working on a shortage. In fact, I saw an ad today, some, somebody passed it on to me that in Nebraska, they're, they're asking for traveling nurses to come in and they don't care whether you've been vaccinated or not. And the reason they're having it is because they, you know, because of um, they've, they've had to lift their mandates. And, and so they really need nurses that will vaccinated or not. It's really sad because nurses are just fantastic people. And I, I seem to recall, like just a couple months ago, we were supposed to be upholding nurses is, and, and doctors as heroes, and they're the people out there on the front lines protecting us. And, you know, I thought that was correct. But now it seems like a whole lot of people are talking about nurses, though, well, if they're not getting the vaccine, it's because they're a bunch of anti-vax nutcases that don't believe in science, even though they went through school studying medicine to be nurses, registered nurses, nurse practitioners. And, you know, from, from my perspective, I absolutely love nurses because I had several of them that helped me through chemo when I had cancer. I had one nurse that she may have actually saved my life. She detected something that was infected and, and definitely needed help. And I had to have a surgery because of that, because of something she caught, which, by the way, was not even her job. She was just my chemo nurse. It wasn't her job to check me and to check my surgery wounds for infection. And yet she did it anyway. So, yeah, I, I have a great deal of respect for nurses. And I think it is shameful the way that they're that we are treating them now. Nurses are the best. Nurses are the best. Great nurses are, are just God's gift to me. And I'm telling you. So I hate, you can't, I just some wrong, it's just wrong to force them to do anything. I just feel for them, especially women. Um, it's just, we know that the spike protein from the vaccine, according to some research from the early, um, that was just, um, um, that we got after the early research, that the concentrations of spike protein in a woman's ovaries is 64 times where it is in the rest of the body. So the shot's not staying in the arm. 25% maybe, but 75% is going throughout the body, including in the ovaries. So what does that mean? So I don't know. We don't, we have no idea what that means. So does it mean in six months, one year, 10 years, who, who knows? So um, anyway, I, 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 I really get upset about that. I'm not big on masks. Mac, 65 mask studies before COVID shows it didn't help. Current studies with the Danish people um, 3,000 were given good, high-quality masks. 3,000 did not wear masks. They followed those two groups, and at the end of the study, they said there was no statistical difference in COVID cases over those many months. Yeah, it seems to me that all the studies that I've seen that conclude that masks were effective in some way, at least, that they try to hold up as saying, see, this is science proving that the mask worked. They were all either done in a lab, usually by a mannequin, so they're not even using real humans. They're just sort of simulating breathing with a mask and seeing where the particles go, or they're done by people with actual PPE training, doctors, nurses, people in a medical setting and in a medical environment. And that just doesn't transfer to the real world and the average person who just has a non-medical mask and stuffs it in their pocket and takes it out and doesn't wash it for a week. Like that's just, as far as a preventive measure, the studies that they hold up as proof that the mask work don't transfer to the real world. And that's really the problem that I have with it. 
even even studies with mannequins where they've where they've used caulk or silicone and sealed the mask to the mannequin they, those are the kind of studies even those don't show much benefit so not really happening it's like uh, somebody said it's like uh, wearing a mask is like uh, uh, fixing three of your five submarine doors are there any drawbacks to mask wearing not so i believe children um we know 81 percent of healthcare workers have headaches when they wear a mask we know that um they're they're causing issues with um uh, anxiousness in children and adolescents there's much higher anxiety rates now um, obesity's up. There's like sometimes in, in the case of growing children, double the weight gain. So, and that's, that's plausible. If you drop your oxygenation significantly, your inflammation goes up. And when your body in the functional medicine world, we talk about this all the time, when your body is inflamed, that inflammation leads to excess weight. So did masks make you heavy or obese? Well, maybe so. I don't know, but, but certainly cortisol does and, and stressing children out, stressing adolescents out, you know, I just think it's bad. It, where's the science? Even our own Surgeon General, when he looked over the original studies about the same time I did, it, back in February, he's he's tweeted he tweeted or whatever you call that, and said that stop buying masks. They don't work. Well, that's what I was saying, and I I haven't worn one. I'm not going to wear one. Um, if you know, unless you present good science, and and no one has yet. I've asked for it, and it, it's even in the CDC's website. There's there's just not good science. It's terrible. Getting rid of CO2 is also important. Getting oxygen in is important. And the other part of respiration is getting rid of excess carbon dioxide. If you keep breathing that, and there's um, there's some anecdotal studies of people measuring the carbon dioxide, you know, and and given levels in the 5,000, 10,000, even somebody in the 25,000 range. So it's like you're not really respirating. You're just breathing the same. It's like when you're breathing into a brown paper bag, essentially, which is when you're hyperventilating. So. Yeah, it's not for me. It's not good science. Show me, show me good science and, and I'll wear a mask because I, I do want to help other people not get sick. Well, thank you for taking some time and talking with us and getting this information out to the audience. I, I have to say, I do feel more optimistic now, which is normally not the case when I'm talking to any of my guests about COVID related things. You know, we, we tend to, because of the severity of it, it's all doom and gloom and there's there's no hope. And uh, I have to say, after talking to you, and I say this about people in the medical community too, you're one of the few that I actually feel better about after having spoken to. I mean, you, you seem to talk about that there's there's ways to prevent and make cases of COVID less severe. And so I have to say, I actually feel a lot better after having talked to you. So thank you for, for bringing that optimism. And I think optimism that is based in fact, it's not false optimism, to this discussion. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, great. Well, it's, it's good to talk with you. I enjoyed it. That was Dr. Ryan McWhorter. We are, of course, very grateful for him sharing his medical expertise with us. And we will be back in just a minute on Tactics. Speech isn't violence. Tolerance isn't love. Disagreement isn't hate. You're listening to Tactics with Caleb Cockwit. If you want to hear more, subscribe to him on YouTube, like him on Facebook, or follow him on Twitter at Tactics Radio. That was stupid. I know it was stupid. Really stupid. Hey, I just said it was stupid. <laughs> All right, and for today's Daily Dose of Stupid, Disney. I, look, I love Disney. I love the Marvel Universe. And I could not have been more thrilled when Disney acquired 20th Century Fox. Now, for those of you that are huge nerds like me and like Marvel movies, 
and for those of you who may not be huge nerds but still like Marvel movies, uh, this was a really big deal because what it meant was the entirety of the Marvel Universe was now under the Disney umbrella, which means that crossovers were now possible. So, again, not to get way too in the details, but originally Marvel's properties were spread out over three studios. Paramount had the MCU, and then you had Sony with Spider-Man, and then 20th Century Fox had Fantastic Four, the X-Men, that kind of thing. So what happened is slowly Disney just acquired all of these studios so that it could make movies with the entirety of the Marvel Universe. They uh, struck a deal with Sony. They didn't actually buy out Sony, but they struck a deal with Sony to be able to get Spider-Man. And they just bought 20th Century Fox. And so now all of those properties are under the Disney umbrella, which was really cool. And I was excited about it because I was hoping for a maybe a Marvel Avengers versus X-Men movie having X-Men in the Avengers, having X-Men in other properties or other movies or other TV shows. I mean, it was a really cool thing, and I was really looking forward to it. The problem is, Disney, I feel like, is just wanting to ruin it. Because they announced earlier that they are looking into development of these properties, which is really the first sign that we have seen that they're doing anything with X-Men. We know they acquired them a long time ago, but they haven't done anything with that property, with those franchises yet, uh, because of contractual obligations and whatever. And now, they are saying that they are going to come out with some kind of X-Men property, possibly on Disney+. Plus. But they're not sure if it's going to be called the X-Men. I kid you not, because the name X-Men is not inclusive enough. We have lost our ever-loving minds. Disney is now saying, we the problem with X-Men, we can't have X-Men, because the word men is in it. First of all, Fox, before they were acquired by Disney, already made that stupid observation and tried to make the X-Men more woke in a really dumb scene with Mystique, which is a character that apparently is central to the X-Men movies, but X-Men fans from the comics aren't really huge fans of. I mean, she's not a bad character per se, but I don't see how she became an original X-Men and, and like one of the core characters in the series. That was a bizarre choice by the people making the X-Men franchise at 20th Century Fox, but regardless, she said, well, we need to change the name of this to X-Women because they're doing all the work. Yeah, okay. Anyway, the X-Men name is inclusive from the very beginning. I realize the word men is in there, but it was never intended to designate that all of the people that were X-Men were indeed male. That was never the intention. And if that's the case, is Disney assuming the gender of all of the female characters in X-Men? Because that's, you know, very anti-woke. They, should, they shouldn't just assume that Jean Grey, Storm, Rogue, Shadowcat, uh, you know, some of the lesser known ones maybe, like Emma Frost, that, that all those people are female. Just because they look like female and dress like females, that doesn't mean that they're female, right? I mean, it kind of cuts against their own woke philosophy, but nonetheless, the thing that's so ridiculous about this is X-Men, out of all of the Marvel properties, is one of the most inclusive series in Marvel's history. The fact that it is called X-Men 
Nobody ever assumed that that meant it was delegated to only male characters. You know how I know that? Because the very first team of X-Men, very first one, there were five original X-Men. Beast, Angel, Cyclops, and then, uh, wait, see, Beast, Angel, Cyclops. Professor Xavier was not counted in this. I'm trying to think. Who was the other? Oh, Iceman. I don't know how I forgot Iceman. And then uh, Jean Grey. So Jean Grey, sometimes called Marvel Girl, you know her from the movies, she was one of the original X-Men. So even from the very first comic, it was always abundantly clear to everybody that knew anything about the series that a woman could be an X-Man too. If anything, I'm kind of surprised that the series isn't saying that this is, I don't know, somehow that... See, women can be men too. Jean Grey's an X-Man, ergo she's a man. Look, the, one of the biggest problems with entertainment in general, I'm not just talking about Disney, even though they're a chief offender of it, is they have made dumb crap like this more important than the actual content and the movies and whether or not people enjoy it themselves. That's been one of the big problems. It's been a big problem in comedy. One of the reasons that late-night comedians and, and comedians in general just aren't as funny as they used to be is primarily because, and, and there have been comics that are by no means on the right that have pointed this out. Uh, I mean, even people like Dave Chappelle, who's not exactly a conservative, or Patton Oswalt or, or some of the others, that you've so pigeonholed the entertainment industry to never be able to say anything that might offend the church of wokeness that you worry way more about that stuff than actually making good content that people like. Now, for all of its flaws, and, and Hollywood's always pushed the envelope, at least they did care about actually making a good movie, and they might work some woke messaging in at this point. With this, they're literally talking about changing the name of the entire franchise, which I don't know what they're going to change it to, like x zero x non-gender specific person x non-binary i don't i don't know what they're going to call it but whatever it is it's not going to have the branding that the x-men franchise has and I, uh, one of the things that i do find so ironic about this is if you have followed the cinematic history of the x-men series which by the way i have i've been on board since day one I'm, i've always been a huge x-men fan i mean i even went to go see the terrible x-men movies in the theaters to show you how dedicated i am and, and there have been some bad ones X3 is one of the worst movies ever. But anyway, that aside, when it comes to the X-Men franchise, they were scared to even make a movie that didn't have the word X-Men in it. If you need proof of this, think about how many X-Men movies there have been and how many of them had the word X-Men in it. Almost all of them. Even when it didn't make sense. Because with the first Wolverine movie, like the standalone Wolverine trilogy, they put X-Men Origins Wolverine. Now, they finally realized they don't have to put the word X-Men on every single thing so people will know who it is. I mean, Hugh Jackman had been doing this for like a decade at this point. They're like, they're going to know who this guy is. So they just called it the Wolverine for the second one and then just went with Logan uh, for the third, which ironically is by far the best movie, marketing aside. But anyway, the point of all of that is Disney is willing to possibly forego profit. And the reason that I say that is branding is extremely important in this country. For the people that are like me that follow this stuff, it doesn't really matter all that much. But for the average moviegoer that's just going to 
the theater looking for a movie to catch, that makes a big difference. Branding, because they may not understand that something that's called anything other than X-Men is an X-Men movie. And so they take this stuff very seriously. Disney is willing to take a profit cut, which I guess you have to at least, I, I suppose at the very least, uh, admire the courage of their conviction, which I don't think it's really there. I think they're just trying to appease people. But nonetheless, uh, they're willing to forego some level of profit in order to do this. And the X-Men is a fairly new franchise anyway. I, I believe the first X-Men comics was the 80s. It certainly got really popular in the 80s and, and really catapulted in the 90s. But my point in all of that is, this is a brand that's been around for a very long time. From its very inception, it was always inclusive. It has always included women. There has never been, to my knowledge, ever at any point in the, you know, almost at least 40-year history at this point of the X-Men franchise where there was not at least one woman on the team. And yet now they're deciding having the word men in it is just not inclusive enough and we have to virtue signal to the rest of the world that we're not going to have any brand new X-Men properties that have the word men in it. This is just ridiculous. I know tons of comic book fans that are by no means conservatives that would be absolutely, you know, just baffled at this move by Disney. So Disney has now gotten to the point that they are so woke, or trying to be so woke, I guess, would be the better way to describe it, because I don't think they're actually being very woke. Their, their own philosophy is, is very internally inconsistent. But they've tried now so hard to be woke and to, that they're willing to just ruin a franchise that they paid literally billions of dollars for. They're willing to just throw that investment down the drain, at least potentially. I mean, I'm not saying that it would necessarily ruin the series. It, frankly, at, at the point that it was when they bought it, it was, it was pretty close to being ruined at that point anyway. But my point is, they're willing to, to just cast aside billions of dollars worth of value with one of the most profitable movie franchises in history so that they can appease the woke mob. We have absolutely lost our minds. Let's go ahead and go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps. Under the command of General George Washington, each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for The Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. All right, and The Chaplain's Report for today. And uh, again, my technology, for whatever reason, is not, not really wanting to cooperate with me. I, I guess it's because I've been gone so long, but we'll see how that goes. Uh, so I'm hoping that my, ver my verses that I have planned for this work... But if you may recall that the last time that we left, and I know that that was a while ago, David had cut off Saul's robe. And this happened when he was hiding in a cave and David just happened to be, just happened to get just close enough to him to where he could cut off the corner of his clothing while he was in the cave uh, to, to show that he had the opportunity to kill him and refused to. And so we're going to look at the next passage in this piece of scripture that describes the next part of this. So let's go ahead and go to 1 Samuel. Oh, there it is. Good. 1 Samuel 24, 
verses 12 through 15. May the Lord judge between you and me. Remember, this is David speaking to Saul. May the, George, may the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord take vengeance on you for me. But my hand shall not be against you. As the Proverbs of ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel gone out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A single flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and decide between you and me, and may he see and plead my cause, and save me from your hand. Oh wait, that's... Oh, that, that was all of it. Okay. So, a little technological snafu, but we got through it. The point of that particular passage, do you notice in that last piece how David is actually calling out God's judgment? He is saying, may the Lord judge between me and between you. That's what I am wanting to happen. And that's really interesting because when it comes to God's judgment, especially as modern day Christians, we tend to always think of God's judgment as something terrible and scary. And by the way, it is. I'm not saying that that's an incorrect way to look at it. But if we are actually in God's favor, if we have a relationship with his son and we have been cleansed of our sins through his blood, then his judgment really isn't something that we should be afraid of or shouldn't be looking forward to. And David illustrates this pretty well. You see, David is so confident that he has done the right thing, that he has acted in a way that God would find acceptable, that David is saying, yeah, God, come down. Judge between the two of us. I want that to happen. That's how confident I am that I'm going to come out smelling like roses in this. And Saul is the one that has been doing things that would be contrary to your will. But I think it also illustrates the trust that David has in God. Because he not only trusts that he has, you know, quote unquote, done his part, that he has acted in a way, at least in this matter, in a way that is accepted, uh, acceptable and pleasing in God's sight. But more importantly, he trusts in God's goodness. He believes that God is a good judge, a righteous judge, and a judge that sees everything. And because of that, he is confident the judgment is going to be correct. And even though it isn't stated outright, you know, maybe in David's mind, there is at least an inkling of an idea that maybe I did do something that isn't right. I don't think that that's the overwhelming thought. I think it's pretty clear that he thinks he is correct. But I think that there is also a sense of, you know what? I call God's judgment down upon both of us. And if there's something that I've done wrong, so be it. It's, it's God. He will do the right thing. We'll actually see later in a passage, later on in his story, that when God's judgment is about to come down on David, David's reaction is, it is the Lord. He will do what's right. And so this is a mentality that David has in other parts of the scripture. And so while I'm not suggesting this is the main message of this passage, I'm saying that David had a relationship with God in such that he trusts that even when David himself messed up and was wrong, that God's judgment coming down as a corrective force was a good thing. And that God was going to do the right thing regardless of what David thought about it or what David did. And that's a confidence and a love and trust for God that most people just don't reach. I mean, every single one of us has sin in our lives, and, and sure, we are able to have that blotted out by Christ's blood, but at the end of the day, we understand that we're imperfect creatures and that we, even after being cleansed, have the capacity to sin again. 
And so to have that confidence that God is going to do the right thing and to call down God's judgment, wanting it to correct us, that's just something that comes with the ideology that we serve a loving, perfect, and righteous God. This concept is called vindication in the scripture, and it's also used a lot in the Psalms, which really shouldn't be surprising because we're seeing this attitude in David, and David writes definitely not all, but a large plurality of the Psalms. We're not sure exactly how many, but a lot of the Psalms are attributed to David for sure. And so because of that, I think that David is sort of giving an actual real-world example in this story. You know, whoever wrote Samuel is, is displaying that this wasn't just something that David did in his prayer life. This wasn't just something David did when he was writing Psalms. This is a belief that David held. And he believed it so much that he was willing to put his own life on the line to prove that it was correct. He believed that he was writing God's side, and, and he was willing to say, God, you judge between the two of us, and you'll do what's right. And so this isn't something that is exclusive to the Psalms either, because he does have that kind of confidence, but the guy understands judgment ultimately belongs to God. And that's another thing, too. See, he doesn't go past his own office granted to him at this moment. And remember that this is someone who has already been anointed by the prophet Samuel to be Israel's king. It would be very easy for David to justify in his own mind, look, in God's sight, I'm king, and so I have the right to kill this usurper king if I want to. And by the way, God had also said that I'm going to deliver Saul into your hand. We talked about that in one of our other passages, and so that could have also been used as a justification for David to do whatever he wanted to to Saul, but he didn't. And the reason that he didn't is pretty clear here. He says, you know what? I trust in God's judgment, so I don't have to take matters into my own hands. God is going to hash that out between the two of us at some point. And so he not only has confidence in God's promises, in God's goodness, in God's righteousness, and in his judgment, but he also believed that at the end of the day, that's just not my place. That's something that only God is supposed to do, and because of that, I'm not going to take up the role of God. I'll leave that to him. You know, there's so many people, I would say a vast majority of the population, unfortunately, and also, unfortunately, some people that claim to be Christians, that they spend most of their lives trying to put themselves in the role of God. See, I get to be my own moral arbiter. You can't tell me that this behavior is wrong because I believe that it's not, or I believe God wouldn't do that. What they've actually done is they've fashioned themselves into God, and they're just using God to try to give themselves credibility with other people. That's all that is. They're saying, well, well God would want me to be happy, therefore I can be with this person who very clearly God would not approve me of, of being with. Well, God would want me to be happy, or, or God would want this for me, so yeah, it's perfectly fine that I'm married to somebody of the same sex as me. Well, well God would want this for me, or, or God would want that. That's not the way the relationship with God is supposed to work, and David gets that. David could have said, well, God wants me to be king, and he actually knew that God wanted him to be king, and used that as a justification for taking Saul's life, but he says, no, I'm not going to do it. God's going to keep his promises. He's going to do what he wants, and I'm going to leave vengeance up to God. I'm not going to raise my hand against his anointed. And I think another important part of this passage is he reiterates that, Saul, I'm not a threat to you. You're pursuing me, the king of a nation. It's basically me and a, a band of, of random men that I've cobbled together. 
they don't have a chance against your army. You're pursuing me like a flea or a dead dog. You're engaged in this massive hunt to take me out when I pose no threat to you. And to prove that I don't, here's the corner of your robe, I was this close to you. I'm not going to hurt you. And so, even though he had the opportunity to do that, I think that's a pretty powerful message coming to Saul that what you're doing is pointless. I don't want to hurt you, and even if I did, you know, unless what hap just happened with God, uh, with God, you know, being behind it, I wouldn't stand a chance against you anyway. So, what are you doing here? And it's a good question. I think it makes Saul think. And I think that the ultimate lesson here is that David really understands that at this point, killing Saul, it's only going to breed more wickedness from him internally, but also with everybody else. History would have remembered that as just one king taking another king's life in order to take the throne. It, they wouldn't remember it the way that it's remembered now, the, the way that David is revered as, as one of the foremost Bible heroes may not have even been worthy to be the progenitor of Christ, you know, someone in the lineage of Christ. Maybe that wouldn't have been all that special if David had just taken Saul's life and taken the throne exactly like Saul would have done to him if the situation were reversed. And we know that from some of his other behavior. But ultimately, I think David understands that that's just a path to more darkness, more hatred, more violence. And if he does that, then that's all that's going to lead to. And if God's judgment removes Saul from the equation, which, you know, was a possibility and eventually did happen in a battle, David's ascension was going to be attained anyway because God already promised him the king. And so David doesn't even have to take his life because God said it was going to happen. And so regardless of what he does, when God says it, David believes it. It makes me think of this really great scene from Avatar The Last Airbender. And I don't want to have to go through the entire story, but suffice it to say there is a big bad guy that is trying to take over the world, known as the Fire Lord. And he, he's trying to conquer the entire Earth, and uh, he's already conquered most of it when this conversation takes place. And there's one person that might be able to beat him. And it's his brother, named Iroh. And they come to him because the Avatar, who is the only other person on Earth that really stands a chance against the Fire Lord, has gone missing and they don't know who else they can turn to. And so they go to this guy who is the Fire Lord's older brother and they ask him to beat him. And he says, look, even if I could beat him, and I'm not sure that I could, history will only remember that as one brother killing another brother for the crown. It has to be somebody else. And I think that that's the kind of mental calculus that, that David is going through here. He understands that if he kills Saul here and now, this is not going to be God taking a, a random shepherd boy from out of nowhere and elevating him to the level of king and leader of his people who will eventually bring the Christ. They'll remember David as just a bloodthirsty tyrant that did whatever it took to take what he wanted and to get his power. And in that sense, he's really not any better than Saul. And I think David understands that, which is the reason that he takes this approach. Because ultimately, how you win does matter to God. God wanted David to be on, on the throne, and maybe he would have even accepted if, if David had taken his life, because it does say that God 
put Saul into his hands, maybe that would have been acceptable. I really don't know. But whether it would be or not, the way that you conduct yourself and the rationale, the, the things that you do to get to the conclusion that you're pushing for, that matters to God a lot. In fact, I think you could make an argument that it matters more than the results. And I think that David kind of proves this here because at the end of the day, this day that happened right here, David wasn't king. Now, David became king, but it was years later and through a lot of struggle and hardship. But it seems like God would have much preferred that way, the way that David chose, than David just taking Saul's life and being coronated that afternoon. Like, that's just, it seems as though that's what God would have preferred David to do. I think if I could sum this lesson up in a sentence, it would be God, or sorry, David loves God and Israel too much to kill Saul. David has such a love and respect for God and his wisdom and his judgment and him doing things the way that he wants, at least in this episode, that he decides that I love God too much to do things that he wouldn't approve of. Or, or that even if maybe they're quote-unquote acceptable and he would be okay with them, it's certainly not the way that God would prefer I conduct myself. And you know what? If I go through this, this is just going to cause strife for Israel. Do I want to be the kind of king that puts my nation ahead of myself or myself ahead of my nation? Because if he cares more about himself than he does his country and his people, killing Saul is the right move here. Because it's him king. But if he cares more about Israel and Israel having at least something resembling a peaceful transition and showing Israel that this is not the way we conduct ourselves in Israel. We don't act like every other paganistic nation where you just kill one another for, for, for power. That's not the way that this nation is supposed to to operate and behave. If David wants to convey that message to his people, then killing Saul is not an option, and I think you realize that. All right, well, I will be back probably in two or three weeks. We'll have to see where it goes. I'm off to a mission trip in Ukraine, so prayers would definitely be appreciated, not only for my health, because I'm still kind of recovering a little bit, uh, but also that our mission would be fruitful and we get to spread the gospel to lots of people. Thank you so much for the prayers and thoughts. Over the course of time that I was sick, I, I greatly appreciate it, and I greatly appreciate Faulkner University also for helping me out with that. They were great through all this. My doctors, my nursing staff uh, couldn't have recovered without them. But ultimately, just like in the story here with David, God's will is what mattered most. And that is why I believe that the prayers absolutely helped that you know, they were something that, that really aided in my recovery, and, and I was very touched by letters and, no, you know, messages that I got from people all over the state of Alabama telling me that they were praying for me. It was not really that unsimilar to what happened when I had cancer, even though, you know, that one was obviously on a much bigger scale. Uh, but I just wanted to say to the audience, thank you so much, guys. I love you. I appreciate you. And I'm sorry I haven't been able to spend more time with you like I normally do. Uh, but your prayers and, and thoughts are, are greatly appreciated, and I am grateful for them, and they do make a difference. Don't let anybody ever tell you that they don't. Stay the course, friends. Thank you for listening to the Tactics Podcast. Tactics is a production of Not Ashamed Media. Any opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of our business partners or sponsors. Graphics by Jessica Dawson. Video production by Jackson Dean. Broadcast studio provided by Faulkner University.
Location studio provided by Delreda Church of Christ. Copyright 2021.